You are listening to American Friends of Israel podcast, a rare opportunity to explore the views of world leaders connected to Israel who come from a variety of fields and explore their thought patterns and perspectives on what lies ahead. And now, welcome your host, Iran Broshi, Chairman of the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. Good afternoon, good evening to all of you who are joining us today. My name is Aran Broshi. I'm the Chairman of the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. And we are so pleased that you could join us today for the continuation of our series of virtual events with world thought leaders hosted by the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. We are proud to sponsor these types of discussions on issues related to Israel and the world, and are pleased to welcome our audience from across North America, Europe, and Israel. The Open University of Israel is, of course, a nonpartisan educational institution, and with over 49,000 students, indeed the largest of Israel's nine accredited universities. We believe sponsoring these types of discussions are very much in the spirit of open dialogue and hearing a range of viewpoints from world leaders on issues related to Israel. And I know we have, we and our audience will very much benefit from Professor Ruth Arnon's perspectives. Professor Arnon, Ruth, if I may, it's an honor you, and a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you to have you here with us today. You've had a long and very distinguished career helping shape and drive Israel's scientific research, particularly in the field of immunology. And if you allow, I'll give a, an abbreviated summary of your professional background. Um, Professor Arnon is the Paul Ehrlich Professor of Immunology at the Weizmann Institute of Science. She's a world-renowned Israeli biochemist and immunologist, and is currently researching anti-cancer and influenza vaccinations. Among her scientific contributions is as co-developer of Copaxone, a drug for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, which is marketed worldwide. Professor Arnon is a member of the Israel Academy of Sciences and Humanities, chaired its science division, and served as the president of the academy from 2010 to 2015. She was also president of the European Federation of Immunological Societies, Secretary General of the International Union of Immunological Societies, and the President of the Association of Academies of Science in Asia. That's a mouthful. Her awards include the Robert Koch Prize in Medical Science, Spain's Jimenez Diaz Prize, France's Legion of Honor, the Wolf Prize for Medicine, the Rothschild Prize in Biology, and the Israel Prize, and the Maimonides Award. We're also pleased that you've had a close association with the Open University of Israel and currently serve on the university's high council. Our format today will be an interactive conversation. So let's jump right into it. Let's start with your early days in science, Ruth. I understand that quite early, perhaps as a, as a 15 year old high school student already, you had uh, your mindset on working in the scientific basis of medicine. How did you know that early? That was your professional field to pursue. How and why did you decide to focus in particular on, on immunology? I think that even as a, as a younger child, even in, in, in a primary school, I knew already that I'm interested in broadly the field of uh, biology. I didn't know how to define it exactly, but I liked it as a small child. I read the book, The Microbe Hunters, and I was fascinated by the, the curiosity of the scientist and how satisfying was when you 
discover something and you, you that that you didn't know before and i i was fascinated by it and i knew i didn't know that it was called research of course but i knew that this is what interests me so when i was in high school i went i i participated in the uh, direction that took uh, life sciences as a as a, the main motive and uh, uh, then i was advised that if i even if I wish to work on biology, it's better to study chemistry because it gives you a more a broader basis for your research. And this, I, I, and I'm glad that I did it. And I give this advice to everybody that I can now. Fabulous. Even if they work, want to work in biology, if you take more chemistry, it gives you a, a, a broad understanding of biological processes. Last month, the United Nations um, celebrated um, uh, the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. And any perspective that you would be willing to share on what it was like as a young woman back in the early 50s to pursue a science education? I assume few women at that time in Israel or worldwide were getting a PhD in the basic sciences, including in chemistry, biology, immunology. Uh, when I started in the, I, I never felt the, the kind of a, a, any a, a discrimination because I, I, because I was a woman. Maybe it is because I grew up in Israel and the atmosphere here was quite good towards women. When I started in the university, as I said, I studied chemistry and then I took biochemistry as my major. In biochemistry, in my class, there were nine people, eight of them were women and only one man. Most of the men went to physical chemistry and, and, and other fields of chemistry and, and, not to, and not to biochemistry. So I never felt that, not, not any discrimination, and I never felt that I'm alone in the field. Um, I even in other not in high school there were quite a few although in in the sciences there were less girls than than boys but still uh, there were quite a few and then in the army I served as an officer in the army and I did not feel any discrimination there so I didn't suffer from that and I uh, and I'm very glad about it do you think that that field that it has changed for women today versus what you experienced? Today, today it is taken more as a for granted that women deserve the same uh, rights. I won't call it rights, but the same chances as men. And I think that they are given and at the Weizmann Institute, the percentage of women among students, among students is very high. Uh, approximately 50% in life sciences, there are more women students than men students. In physics and mathematics, there are more men than, 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 than women. But altogether, the percentage of students, even for a PhD in Israel, in this stage, the percentage of women is quite high. The difference comes later when, when you know, in, uh, positions in universities, the higher the rank, the less women. Yeah, yeah, understood, understood. Thank you for that. Let, let me shift gears and talk a bit about Copaxon. 
Um, you're perhaps most well known as the co-developer of Copaxone for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, MS. And MS, I believe, is the most common disabling neurological disease of young people, um, affecting over 2 million or so patients globally. Um, Copaxone was licensed by the Israeli biopharmaceutical company Teva in 1987, became the company's first innovative drug product, uh, received FDA approval then about 10 years later, 1996, and went on to become a blockbuster drug with global sales of over 4 billion at its uh, 4 billion US dollars at its peak before losing patent exclusivity. And it has been widely prescribed and has benefited perhaps 40 to 50% of all the world's MS patients, which is remarkable. If you don't mind, Ruth, tell us maybe briefly the story of the discovery and the development of Copaxone. Was it a result of a focused research effort to identify a therapeutic for MS or was there some degree of serendipity or how did, how did that evolve? Uh, if I have to describe it in one word, I would say serendipity. Uh, but, I, but I will tell you the story. Uh, our expertise in our laboratory, and when I say our, I mean Professor Michael Sella and myself. Uh, Michael Sella was then a, a relatively young scientist. Uh, I was his first PhD student, and then I continued to work on, uh, after, after going for a postdoctoral position abroad, I came back and I, uh, we, we worked together for many, many years. Actually, until now, we are still doing things together, although uh, we are not young, as young as we used to, used to be. But uh, anyway, our interest was using uh, polymers of amino acids, which are actually protein-like molecules, and studying their biological properties. This was our expertise, the expertise of our laboratory. We are immunologists, so of course we are interested in the immunological properties of, uh, of such polymers. And uh, we were not after looking after developing of a drug, but we were interested in multiple sclerosis because it's an autoimmune disease, namely a disease of the immune system. And at that time, somebody in the United States, not us, developed an animal model which mimics multiple sclerosis. It's not exactly multiple sclerosis, but it mimics multiple sclerosis. And he induced this disease in uh, guinea pigs by injecting them with a protein isolated from the brain. We looked at the structure of this uh, protein and we said, well, there's nothing special about it. We can synthesize a polymer that will be similar to, uh, to this pro a protein, and maybe that it will mimic the activity of the protein and will also be able to in uh, induce a disease. And this will give us a wonderful research tool to study the mechanism of the disease. We were, not inter we were interested in studying the mechanism, how, how an autoimmune disease is, uh, is acting, actually. So we synthesized not only one polymer, we synthesized three such polymers that with a little bit different structures. And we tested all three of them. And we spent almost a year trying to induce the disease with them and no disease whatsoever. And then we said, well, maybe our polymers are not so similar to the protein in order to mimic its activity, but maybe they're similar enough in order to compete with it. And we did one experiment, and as you say, lo and behold, 
in the control group that were that were treated only by the protein, eighty percent of the of the guinea pigs came down with the disease. In those that we treated with our polymer, either before or after in uh, treating them with the protein, twenty percent only. So at that point, we had to make a switch in our minds, and instead of studying the mechanism of the disease, studying the mechanism of inhibition of the disease. And we were, I don't know if to call it clever, but uh, maybe this is the word, it probably was the idea of Michael Sella, to take out a patent that we called a therapeutic copolymer. And I mention it because if there was no patent, there wouldn't be a drug. No, comp no pharmaceutical company would undertake the effort and the cost of developing a drug if they don't have patent protection. So this is an advice that I give to all my colleagues, mainly young colleagues. If you have something that has a potential for commercialization, first of all, take a patent. You never know. Maybe you lost your money on, 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 on taking out the patent, but otherwise there will be no chance of its development uh, in the future. Incredible, incredible story. And, and the rest is history. Yeah, yeah, as they say. Um, and, and Ruth, what, tell us a bit about the timeline. Um, we know the license to Teva was in 87, the FDA approval and marketing began 10 years later, but there was obviously a whole lot of work ahead of time. What, what is what is that time horizon from start to? This is a very interesting question. Actually, the I think that in every uh, research, there is a stage where there is basic research, and then there is technology transfer. I mean, if you want to develop a, pro a, a product, a product cannot be developed in a university or research institute. It has to be developed in a company. So there is a stage of, of technology transfer, and then there is a stage of the development. So there are three stages. This is the, uh, talking about research that is done in a university. Now, uh, uh, we have a, a, the stage of the basic research took us, I would say, about seven years from the time that we started until we knew that we had a material that inhibits the disease, not only in one species, but in many species, including primates. And we had all the basic research information. Then it took some time to uh, find a a collab a collaboration with a clinician that will, uh, because what we study is the animal model, but will it work also on MS, uh, the, the actual disease in MS patients? And it took me for, I think that for, for almost two years, I traveled to every single conference that the word multiple sclerosis was mentioned in it. And finally, I found a, a, a partner, a, 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 a neurologist from the Albert Einstein School of Medicine, uh, Dr. Mary Bornstein. He was fascinated by our results because we showed that even in primates, we can, we can inhibit the disease. And a, 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 a baboon that was completely paralyzed then became 
healthy again and started jumping in the in the cage. It was uh, I had a, a movie about it, and he decided. He said, "I'm ready to test it in 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 MS patients," and the clinical trial uh, took uh, uh, several years, but the results were so clear cut that the Teva company became interested. It took us some time because I tried other companies, but I was talking to the scientists and the scientists were not interested in developing a, a, a product that somebody else develops. So eventually uh, we brought it before Teva and uh, Eli Hurwitz, who was at that time the uh, CEO of Teva, said that this is the right niche for Teva and uh, they took it on. Yeah. And it took then Teva, as you mentioned, nine years to do another clinical trial, a phase three clinical trial, because you know, in all clinical trials, there is phase one that shows a safety, phase two that shows efficacy in a relatively uh, small number of, uh, of uh, patients. We did it in 50 patients uh, we, in the collaboration with Dr. Mary Bernstein. And Teva did it then in 300 patients and showing fantastic results. And only then it was uh, uh, yeah. approved by the FDA. Yeah, no, fabulous. I think, by the way, we, we all worldwide have become quite familiar with the, uh, the clinical trial process over the last year. We'll, we'll come back to that. But an amazing success, an amazing success. But overall, roughly 30 years, I think, from the beginning of, if I added up your numbers roughly right, from the beginning of research till FDA approval. So it's a it's a, these are these are long 29, projects. Twenty nine years. Twenty nine years. Exactly. There you go. There you go. Well, let's let's shift to another area of your more recent research focus, which is the development of a universal flu vaccine. Um, the World Health Organization estimates that every year there are about a billion influenza cases. Three to five million of those are severe, and about three hundred thousand to six hundred thousand result in respiratory deaths worldwide. So the numbers are huge, also. And as we know, each year the pharmaceutical industry develops a new influenza vaccine that targets the strain of the virus that expected for that year. However, I think you set out to find a more universal flu vaccine, and the early experiments were quite promising. And in 2003, you helped establish an Israeli biotech company, BeyondVax, um, and the company has continued to do clinical trials. But as I understand it, late in 2020, so just a few months ago, the, 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 the pivotal phase three trial uh, for the universal flu vaccine fail to meet its primary and secondary efficacy endpoints. So perhaps you could just give us a little sense, Ruth, how broad was the goal of this universal flu research program? Was it primarily targeting seasonal flu, also pandemic flu strains, avian flu, et cetera? And, uh, and what happened with the clinical trial? Why did it not succeed? Okay, I'll say as much as I can. First of all, for the vaccine itself, uh, as uh, you mentioned, every year, there is a, a there is I mean the influenza virus is special and different from many other from most of the other viruses in that it changes every year. Every year there is a new strain that is different from the strain of the years before, and therefore it will not respond to the vaccine that was developed against the vaccine, the, against the strain of uh, last year. And this is why the procedure is that every year, in approximately April, the WHO, uh, using several monitor uh, 
monitoring in several places in the world, it decides which are the three strains that will be the most uh, uh, the most uh, uh, current in the next year, and they tell all the vaccine companies you prepare a vaccine against these strains. Now, the idea that we have, uh, as, as I mentioned before, I am working with synthetic polymers, and the idea was to synthesize a material that will contain not the areas in the flu virus that are changing every year, but to focus on regions in the proteins of the virus, in several proteins of the virus, that do not change among many strains of the virus, and prepare a synthetic material that will contain only these regions and to vaccinate with it. And uh, we had a, a, a excellent, uh, so we produced such a synthetic material. Uh, we tested it in mice. Luckily, mice are sensitive to the same influenza, in, in, in the same strains that are infective in people. And we showed fantastic protection, 99 to 100% protection in, uh, in mice. And then uh, at that time, approximately, the uh, Beyond Vax company was established. And they, first of all, worked for procedures for preparing uh, such a material in large quantities that are necessary. And uh, then they did phase one study showing that it is completely safe. Actually, if there were some, uh, some you know, uh, uh, effects, they were more in the placebo group than in the vaccinated group. Mm -hmm. People complain about headache or something like that. Anyway, it was completely safe. Then they did uh, efficacy studies, which is phase two in several hundreds of uh, individuals, not patients, because they are, these are healthy people, uh, of different ages. Uh, one group was in uh, age 65 and over. Uh, and they tested efficacy by looking for antibodies and looking for cellular immune response. Uh, in, when working in a small group in a few hundred people, there is no point in looking uh, if you don't want to do what is called challenge experiment, that you actually subject the or expose the participants to the live virus and see who becomes sick and who does not become sick. But this is not ethical and it is not done and it was not approved. But if you just look for who becomes sick, so in, if you test 300 people, you don't get an answer. So uh, the only Thing they knew, the only fact they knew is that the uh, participants in the trial uh, produced antibodies and, and, and mainly cellular, uh, cellular immunity towards the vaccine and towards many, many strains of influenza. I cannot say all, but uh, because they tested maybe 10 different strains, but completely different from each other, uh, including pandemic ones and they, they, there was response, immune response against all of them. And then they did the phase three clinical trial. And as you mentioned, uh, there was not, uh, uh, it did not reach the level of uh, 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 efficacy that is required between the placebo. Half of the people, this included 20,000 individual, uh, 
uh, half of them uh, immunized with a placebo and half with a vaccine. And the difference was not enough to uh, allow, uh, to, to, it did not reach the, the end point. Yeah. Um, why, I don't know. Uh, all the trial was done in Eastern European countries. Uh, the control that we have over them is a bit less than we would have in a Western country, but this was what was possible to do. And uh, I don't know, I was heartbroken, but this doesn't help. Yeah, yeah. And the outlook for a flu vaccine going forward, a universal flu vaccine, do you, do you see it continuing? Is this just a challenge there on the are, road? There, 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 there is an effort to produce a vaccine that is based on a single protein of the virus in which or a, or a part of, the, of this, a single protein of the virus that might give protection. Until now, we do not have positive results in that, and there is no phase three trial running yet, but hopefully yeah. we'll find something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, disappointing understood, and uh, obviously a big, a big challenge. Um, but let me, let me shift gears and talk about the, the most recent big challenge that we've all been living with, which is COVID-19. And I know, Ruth, it's not your specific area of expertise per se, and but given what's obviously happened around uh, the world, uh, it's on everyone's mind. And so any comments you could share would be, would be appreciated. Maybe let's start first with the vaccines that were initially the first ones to be approved, the mRNA vaccine, vaccines developed by Pfizer and Moderna. Um, given the timelines you were talking about earlier of you know, decades, um, including for BeyondVax, um, long, long time horizons, how was it possible that these vaccines were developed and gotten to FDA approval and worldwide sort of approval within in under 12 months? Um, and at the same time to develop something that has such a high level of efficacy, this 95% or so number that, uh, that we've all obviously heard about, is it because the, the virus was so relatively a simple virus or a well understood virus, or is the mRNA technology really the key here? Um, how, how, how would you describe that? Well, first of all, the coronavirus uh, is a virus that we know since a long time. Most of the what we call common cold is caused by coronavirus. Most of the coronaviruses are uh, infective, but not uh, they result in a common cold and not more serious than that. Uh, sometimes there are strains that develop, including the COVID-19, the MARS, the, the SARS at the time, and the MERS, and now the COVID-19, that are much more uh, infective, and not only much more infective, but they also cause a more serious disease uh, in which there are uh, the, the, the level of, or the rate of mortality and the severity is uh, much higher than in other coronaviruses. Uh, the coronaviruses, uh, differing from many other viruses, has a single protein, the spike protein, uh, which is uh, surrounding uh, the entire virus. And this is actually what the immune system sees when they see the coronavirus. They see only the spike protein. Now, the usual 
procedure for developing a vaccine is to grow the virus, inactivate it or uh, attenuate it in one way or another, and lead to a product that will not cause the disease, but will lead to immunity and protection against it. Uh, this, is, this is usually the, a very long process because uh, uh, viruses cannot be grown like bacteria in media. They have to be, grow, to, grow, to be grown on living cells. And this is a very long process. And this, uh, uh, it was not even a possibility if you want to, to produce a vaccine in a relatively short time. So because of the new, relatively new technology of being able to synthesize, synthesize the messenger RNA of a virus <clears throat> in a relatively short time, this was the, uh, I won't say the natural uh, way of thinking, but it was one way of thinking. And the fact is that two different companies thought about it, both the uh, uh, Moderna and the BioNTech, the German company BioNTech that was bought by, uh, by Pfizer. Not bought, but they, 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 license, they, yeah. li they license it from BioNTech. And uh, this is why they could do it in a relatively short time. The fact that it is, in, that it is so effective, uh, I think, I, I don't know, I don't have an explanation to it, but uh, the fact that they could find the efficacy is because the uh, disease was so spread. And in certain countries like South America, the rate of, of uh, the level of disease, um, the number of, of individuals was, that are suffering from the disease was so high that you could uh, do a trial and learn about the efficacy in a relatively short time. And luckily, there is a great efficacy. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. How, how broad do you think this mRNA technology will be applicable going forward in vaccine uh, vaccines more broadly? Is it limited to certain types of viruses? Is it more broadly applicable across a whole broad range of viruses? And what happens in with with the mutations that we're starting to see the uh, the new variants that are starting to emerge? Um, what what will be needed to address address those? Well, first of all, uh, in the case of the coronavirus, uh, luckily, I don't know if this is the right word, but there is only one protein, the spike protein, that is involved in the, uh, uh, that, that is seen by the virus. So that synthesizing a messenger RNA that will lead to the a production of antibodies against this protein in the vaccinated individuals, this was possible. The, in the case of uh, influenza, this, for example, this yeah. is not the case. You need, you need a response against more than one protein. So you can say that we were lucky in quotation marks in the case of the coronavirus, that there is only this single protein and this uh, uh, technology could be applied. Uh, um, the, uh, what we know now about this vaccine is, first of all, the high efficacy. We know that it is safe, uh, definitely in a short term, short term safety. We don't know anything for long term, let's say 
10 years from now, what, how will the people who were vaccinated will respond 10 years from now? But uh, this is, uh, of course, less interesting right now. And, but uh, I think that the, uh, this technology will be implemented in other cases when we are talking about a single protein that, uh, protect, that response against it may lead to protection. When it will be more than pro one protein, I think that it will much, be much more complicated and I don't know whether it could, uh, it could be a, a general procedure for producing vaccines uh, from now on. Yeah, and from the point of view of the variants, how do you see the mRNA technology being uh, tweaked or uh, utilized as, as people are talking about? Well, uh, mutants are being formed all the time. Uh, some of them uh, will... Uh, uh, the vaccine will respond against, and some of them the vaccine will not respond against. This is why the virus developed its mutants in order to in order to survive in spite of uh, of the vaccine. Uh, maybe that there will that there would be a need for another another vaccine that will protect again. But I guess that the more we know about the the a virus and the different mutants and in which regions of the proteins the mute the, the mutations occurs the more the easier it will be to to produce in advance vaccines yeah. also mrna vaccines in relatively short time that will protect against this uh, mutant as well yeah good good thank you for that let me let me step back a little bit and and let's talk a bit about biopharmaceutical innovation more broadly in in Israel and how how that has evolved. I mean, we all know Israel as the startup nation, the innovation nation, and indeed on a variety of rankings, you know, Israel is among the top five countries worldwide in absolute terms in terms of innovation and startup success, and on a per capita basis, number one on on many many rankings, which is unbelievable, um, and that extends into high tech, it extends into cyber, it extends into water technology, it extends into med tech. But it really relatively in the biopharmaceutical discovery and development area, Israel is, is a relatively small player, both on the therapeutic side and the vaccine side. Why is that? Kind of why, what, what are the barriers? And are there areas within biopharmaceutical R&D where Israel has a particular niche or a particular advantage that it should focus on from a global basis? Uh, most of the uh, biopharma industry in Israel uh, is, uh, is based on small companies that are innovative and there, there is a lot of research and development that is done in this area concerning uh, in different directions. Uh, but uh, for development of a product that is used worldwide, usually you need a large company. And uh, as in the case of Copaxon, if you, the only company who could produce it was Teva, who uh, at that time was not so large, but became larger and larger with the uh, development of Copaxon and with the production of it. And uh, so th this is actually an essential, essential component. But there is a lot of innovation in Israel concerning uh, even biopharmaceutical, uh, biopharmaceutical uh, uh, in, in the biopharmaceutical direction. And I am sure that uh, 
not in the long, uh, not long from now, we'll hear of development that are being uh, introduced by Israeli, uh, in the, the Israeli biopharma. I personally know of several companies that are doing great in this area, and uh, I'm sure that we will hear good news from them. Uh, the, one of the advantages in Israel is that being a small country, there is a lot of collaboration between scientists in the universities and scientists in the biopharma. And in many cases, the biopharma companies are uh, actually uh, developed by scientists that come from the uh, academic, uh, from the academia, including from the Open University, which is doing, uh, uh, which is doing very uh, useful research uh, in this field. So uh, I am, uh, I am confident that something that that this will, field will develop also, although it is much more difficult, much more expensive. The clinical trials that are required, mainly the phase three clinical trial, are very expensive, and it is not easy for a small company to run a third, a, a, a third phase a trial. I, I know it very well from a personal experience. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. It may very well be that the same vaccine that was produced by BeyondVax, if it was handled by a large company, it may very well be that the results would have been different. Uh, there is no control experiment. Sure. <laughs> I know in biological experiments, you need a control and here there is no control, but it is uh, much more difficult for small companies to develop a, 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 a product for worldwide use than for a large company. But the biopharma in Israel, I think that is a, quite developed and there are several companies that are extremely interesting. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. There's another part of biopharmaceutical sort of R&D and, and biopharmaceutical development that I wanted to get your perspective on and whether there's potentially a broader opportunity for Israel to leverage its data assets, data increasingly becoming a, an important component, particularly given the Israeli sort of the integrated electronic medical records in Israel. And we know that Israel obviously was has been a world champion in vaccination, and in part that was by securing a very significant supply of, of vaccines from Pfizer was obviously very helpful, and that really was made possible by leveraging this integrated health data set related to COVID through the four HMOs, health maintenance organizations in Israel, the Kupot Cholim, uh, which capture essentially across all of Israel's population in real time all medical diagnoses, all physician visits, all hospital visits, all lab data, all prescription data and being able to leverage this real world evidence of what is the impact of the rollout of the vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccine in this case. Do you see that as an area that is potentially applicable for Israel more broadly, leveraging those data assets in biopharmaceutical development? I am not sure. And I am, you know, the, the success of the vaccination is due to, or thankful to the organization of the Kupot Cholim that have access to practically the entire population in a relatively short time. And not because of the fact that they have all the medical data. I don't think that, that they studied the medical data 
of uh, any individual who came for vaccination. Everybody came to be, they called everybody to be vaccinated regardless of, uh, uh, now I think that the individual who has special problems maybe ask their, their individual physician whether they should or not should or should not be vaccinated. But as far as Kupot Cholim were concerned, they just invited everybody to be vaccinated right. and it's the logistic, the, the, the logistic that helped them in vaccinating maybe 80% of the population in a relatively, in a relatively short time. I, I mean the population in the, in the, re, in the age range that, that should be vaccinated. Children have not been yeah. vaccinated. Uh, so, uh, but in addition to that, in addition to that, I think that in Israel, uh, we have uh, companies with AI uh, capability, artificial intelligence, and they are using their, uh, uh, I would say, uh, the power of this technology in order to evaluate medical data. And this, I think, in this Israel may excel. And I know of several companies that are doing this and they are still in the uh, initial stages of, of development and, and of, the, of the entire process and, and, and using it in uh, uh, broad areas. But I think that this is a very promising area. Yeah. Well, so and Israel, it's, Israel is a good place to do it. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think, you know, right now, obviously, in the COVID-19 example, the whole world is looking at Israel and uh, knowing that the great logistical capabilities of the Kupot Cholim and the ability to vaccinate which was what drove Pfizer to be be willing to give all this uh, all this vaccine. Um, they doses. did not give it. They did not give it. They, they sold, sold it for yes. a very good price. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> Although that price has not been published, uh, <laughs> but I think you are. But I think you're right. So that's, I think that whole data area is potentially a very interesting area with AI, um, but for for Israel to 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 develop. Um, let me let me switch in the final con part of this conversation to talking about Israel in science more broadly than in just uh, pharmaceutical R&D, if you will. And obviously, beyond your scientific work in immunology, you, of course, have, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, you were the president of the Academy of Science, the Israel Academy of Science and Humanities, um, with the goal of cultivating and promoting scholarly and scientific endeavor in the natural sciences, advising the government on scientific research and, and planning of national significance. So let's talk a bit about just the state of science and innovation in Israel. How, how do you see this Israel standing today globally in the basic sciences? And does that differ between what I guess I, I would be called curiosity-driven basic scientific research and more use-inspired uh, scientific research or science with a distinct purpose, which is how, for example, I think the semiconductor transistor or the integrated circuit were developed with a very more focused basic science uh, kind of focus. Where is Israel strong? Where is Israel less strong? How do you see the state of play today? Well, in a broad way, I would say that curiosity-based uh, research is uh, relatively strong in Israel. Uh, you mentioned that the Academy is uh, supposed to give advice to the government. That is true. But I think that the Academy wants more to give advice than the government was to accept the advice <laughs> or is searching for the advice. But anyway, we, we, we really do our best. And supporting education, STEM, education in the STEM field, I think that is extremely important 
not only in universities and high schools, but starting from primary schools. And uh, we try to uh, uh, arouse the curiosity in very young children of primary school by having a chugim, how is it called? Um, activities a, or? Activi uh, extracurricular activities. Yeah. Uh, at the Weizmann Institute, we have, for example, the Davidson Institute, which is dealing only with scientific education for all ages. All ages, I mean, from sm uh, small children to children in uh, uh, school years, and also to adults. There are many uh, uh, possibilities for adults to to uh, participate in activity that is related to uh, to science. So, and uh, in this case, mostly the STEM areas, which we think that are the most important for uh, development and for uh, uh, innovation. And we see the results in the number of uh, startup companies and. Uh, uh, beginning uh, early stages companies uh, in Israel that I think that several thousands, several thousands of companies like this in Israel in many fields of research from biomedicine to electronics. And, and, and uh, the results is uh, uh, being seen from time to time. We hear about something that is uh, that really uh, uh, reaches a, a peak and a, and a successful uh, uh, exit or something like that. Well, Including Mobileye, for example, is one of the companies which started, which is an Israeli company, which I think the product of which is used worldwide uh, right now. So, uh, and I think that we should continue in that, although STEM is not the only one, but I think that if you excel in STEM, then you have also potential to excel in other areas as well. And no and doubt. I think, and ahead, I think all, all the universities in Israel are looking at it that way, including the Open University, with, in which there are several uh, courses and, and di direction and efforts in this, uh, in this direction. Uh, thank you for that, Ruth. It, it, it's clear that you know, the, the strong focus on STEM and, and really the you know, the highly educated uh, nature of, of Israeli society, because at the end of the day, human capital is really most of the natural resource that Israel has. There isn't much, uh, much else, a little bit of natural gas here and there at this point, uh, but it's really the human capital. And that innovation engine really has been fueled by that. As you look longer term out, um, how concerned are you? And let me just phrase that a little bit in, in terms of when you dig a little bit under the surface of the educational achievements, if you will, of Israeli youth um, and what that will look like over the longer term, there are significant differences in educational attainment between various communities. And I'm thinking in particular, the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi community, and the Arab-Israeli communities have a relatively low share of university graduates, including in STEM. Um, and if you think based just based on pure demographics and family size and project out these two communities who are about a, a third of Israel's population today, that third will become roughly 50% or over 50% of Israel's population in the next 30, 40 years. I know that's thinking long term, but that is the time horizon. Um, is there enough being done in 
pursuing and driving STEM education, including in those communities? Should other things be done to make sure that Israel retains its highly, you know, advanced, if you will, um, ability to innovate? Um, and and where, where do you see that going forward? Uh, first of all, I think that we should separate between the Haredi population and the Israeli Arab population. Uh, in the case of the Israeli Arabs, there is an effort to increase both the level of the level of education there and mainly in the field of them and there are some high schools uh, i think that two years ago the high school that got the best uh, results in the matriculation examination was an arab school in israel oh. so that the arab the israeli arabs are making a progress and a, a, a relatively larger and larger percentage of them uh, strive for uh, academic education in Ben Gurion University, in the Open University, in uh, so many several in Tel Aviv University. Right now, the, the the percentage of Arab students increased dramatically in the last few years. There are several colleges, especially in the Galilee, in which the the, the number of Arab students are uh, are high. And I hope that eventually they will reach the level of uh, that they make an effort in this direction they realize how important it is and i think that uh, that 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 they will uh, uh, they will uh, succeed in this direction the haredi population is a completely different because it is only a question that they have to decide that they want it they are quite talented and the academic, uh, I would say, management uh, tries to, to, you know, to go towards them and even allows them to have classes that are separate for women and men, which I think that is overdoing it. If they want to study, if they want afterwards to go to work, they will not have places of work that are only men and only women. So they may just as well start from the academic level and, and not. But uh, there is right now the the number or the percentage of the Haredi people that want to to take to 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 go and to acquire academic uh, education is not high enough. I hope it will go higher and higher. And this is because they will realize that they don't want to stay poor. Right now, because they lack education, most of the Haredis are uh, poor and depend on others to help them in their actual day-to-day -to -day survival. I believe that eventually they would like to leave this position and become more affluent and this will drive them. And we see already, with, and actually in this direction, the open universities is uh, contributing a lot because they don't have to report to anybody that they study in the open university. So each Haredi person who, who wants to do it can do it and only he or she actually himself may uh, register, take courses, and eventually uh, make progress in this direction. So uh, I hope that because they will want to 
uh, 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 make to have better life eventually they will uh, go more to academic education to acquire this and become more involved in the society in general although i know that it is difficult for them because it's a question of belief and belief is something that is very difficult to persuade somebody not to do it well said ruth very well said um we are we are coming up on the hour and so i want to i want to thank you i want to wrap up here and thank you so much for that fascinating discussion ruth and for taking time out of your schedule in the evening in in israel to be with us today thank you on behalf of myself and all of my colleagues at the open university of israel as as go ahead sorry please it was my it was my pleasure i i really uh, admire the open university for the work that they are doing for such a large number i think that the open university is the largest one in israel as far as the number of students uh, that study in it are concerned and therefore uh, i i enjoy serving on the council and uh, knowing more and learning more about the open universities and i enjoyed spending the evening talking to you Thank you, Ruth. Let me give just a quick, just to, to follow on that, for those of you less familiar with the Open University, indeed, it is with 49,000 students, it is the largest university in Israel, um, combining really a, a state-of-the-art online higher education platform, learning platform, with 70 campuses, physical campuses spread all across Israel. And STEM, by the way, is a very significant part of the university's focus. Over a third of all Open University students are focused on studying STEM. Um, and a quarter are studying computer science and math within, within STEM, which is, by the way, by about a quarter of all of the students across all of Israeli universities studying computer science and math are at the Open University. So it is, uh, it is truly a very significant uh, contributor to driving academic justice, driving social justice across all, all of the participants, the Haredi population, the Arab-Israeli population, the Ethiopian population, the Druze population, underprivileged students and the handicapped. So with that, I just wanted to thank uh, all of you, our audience, for joining us this afternoon, this evening, showing your commitment to Israel and to the topics we discussed. And if you enjoyed this program, please be on the lookout for additional virtual salons that we will be hosting. And hopefully as the vaccine rollout, not only across Israel continues, but across the world, at some point uh, in 2021, we'll be gathering perhaps in person rather than only via Zoom. In the meantime, if you want additional information, our website has information at fui.org uh, or on Facebook or LinkedIn. And um, I wanted to wish everybody a good afternoon, a good evening, and stay safe. Thank you again, Ruth. A great pleasure. It was my pleasure. All the best. Okay. Dear listeners, we invite you to support our life-changing mission to further the goals of the Open University of Israel, a pioneer and cutting-edge leader in distance learning, dedicated to educating all those who would otherwise be denied a university education. Please find the donate link inside the episode description. Thank you.